0: Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in for another episode here on the Promethean Perspective. I'm your host, Emily Ryback, and today's Theology Thursday, we are going to be talking about some prevalent moral topics and discussions, I guess, in our society. And we're going to be talking specifically about um, human actions, the powers of the soul, what? Um, are all topics um, that kind of branch out from this. But in today's particular episode, we are going to focus on um, divine and natural laws as understood by the Catholic Church. And this will help us gain insight into moral living, specifically in today's society, as we continue to experience new dilemmas in our culture with modernity. And we will also, like, briefly touch upon some specifics but we're not going to exhaust that discussion in this episode just because it would turn into a rather lengthy one. Rather, we are going to evaluate moral situations in light of what we have already kind of discussed about um, morality. Um, so, I just want to give a little bit of a preface before we jump into today's episode. We are going to be talking about things like euthanasia, abortion, and then in vitro fertilization, and also things like maybe stem cell research and stuff, which is obviously a very prevalent topic dialogue with the vaccines. So we are going to be talking about some rather mature topics. So this isn't like a podcast that you maybe would want to listen to unless you were completely focused and able to kind of grasp the depth of what we're discussing here today. But I invite you whenever you get a moment to, um, I guess, tune in so that you can learn more about this broader conversation that really does have a lot of merit and it's really important that we understand our moral stance. And even if you're not Catholic, I'm going to be drawing a lot from obviously with the church's teaching on morality and such but even if you're not Catholic, if you have an intellect, a reasoning, a rationale about you, a conscience, um, they don't contradict um, the morality of the church does not does not contradict what is morally right? It doesn't contradict um, what our conscience, truly does guide us to what is actually right and what is actually wrong. Um, So, even if you're not Catholic and you reject the teachings of the Catholic Church, if you're a rational person, this should be pretty straightforward and logical um, for you. So, I want to begin about um, the church has a church, but also the Catholic Church is a mother and teacher. And there's an encyclical that was promulgated by Pope Paul VI in 1964, Lumen Gentium, and I wanted to just quote a paragraph from that to kind of broach today's discussion because among the principles of bishops and those who preach the gospel um there is certain duties therein that occupy an eminent place so for bishops um are preachers of the faith who lead new disciples to christ they are authentic teachers that is, teachers also endowed with the authority of Christ who preached to the people, committed to them the faith they must believe and put into practice, and by the light of the Holy Spirit illustrate that faith. They bring forth from the treasury of revelation new things and old, making it bear fruit, and vigilantly warding off any errors that threaten their flock. Bishops teaching in communion with the Roman pontiff are to be respected by all witnesses to divine and Catholic truth. In matters of faith and morals, the bishops speak in the name of Christ, and the faithful are to accept their teachings and adhere to it with religious assent. This religious submission of mind and will must be shown in a special way to the authentic magisterium of the Roman pontiff, even when he is not speaking ex cathedra. That is, it must be shown in such a way that this supreme magisterium is acknowledged with reverence, the judgments made by him are sincerely adhered to, and according to his manifest mind and will. His mind and will in the matter may be known either from the character of the documents, from his frequent repetition of the same doctrine, or from his manner of speaking. Although individual bishops do not enjoy the prerogative of infallibility, they nevertheless proclaim Christ's doctrine infallibly whenever, even though dispersed throughout the world, but still maintaining the bond of communion among themselves with the successor of Peter. And authentically, teaching matters of faith and morals, they are in agreement on one position as definitively to be held. This is even more clearly verified when gathered together in an ecumenical council. These are teachers, judges of the faith and morals for the universal church whose definitions must be adhered to with the submission of faith. So that's paragraph 25 of Lumen Gentium. And I guess one thing that I wanted to stress here is that um, there is a bond, there is a communion um, between uh, amongst those who live their life within the within the standards of the infallible doctrine. Um, there are bishops that do not um, coincide with the teachings or the doctrines or they they live outside of the the clarified faith and morals and they're not in agreement with the positions held by the church at all times. So just to be clear there are, always going to be individuals who are broken and who have sinned and make bad decisions and kind of fall off the bandwagon in many ways. Um, so that's where our intellect comes into play. Um, the bishops of the church were not the only one given an intellect. They were not the only one giving reason and faith and a rational soul, um, or the Pope or whomever. Um, we've all been given a rational soul which allows us to have faith and allows us to have an intellect it allows us to reason and determine what's logical and what's moral um and so that's when our own gifts from god come into play in regards to what others may urge us to do in regards to doctrine so it may strike you as surprising that the words of pope francis are still so relevant or, or, or not of pope francis of pope paul the Sixth, whom we just read from are still so relevant to this current age because we find many people like pondering that question of what is true authority and perhaps we have experienced times where we identify with the Jewish people of Christ's time saying like where did this man get all this like is he not the carpenter the son of Mary you know has Mark uh, 6 indicates and it can be hard for us um because blessed with the gift of intellect and will um to submit two gifts to anyone and even harder to do so if we are unsure of the other's like worthiness so we often need to be convicted that one is in authority is deserving of our full appreciation our awareness before we are willing to become obedient and this is made harder by the reality that humanity is flawed no doubt about it and and no human authority will ever be truly perfect um and this is why the church's authority is not human it does not come from human beings the church is established by christ and has remained faithful to him and has, is guided by the Holy Spirit um, in such a manner that it is consistent with apostolic succession for over 2,000 years. So the Pope is not the head of the church. The Pope is the vicar of Christ. Christ is the head of the church. And the authority of the church is given by God and is only to be obeyed because it's been endowed by the gift of the Creator, our Father, who has instructed us to... Um, charged the church with authority, and it is the Lord whom we obey when we obey the church because he has established her, has the means to proclaim and make known his um, teaching for every generation, including the one that we're in now. So this draws us to the matter of the magisterium. There's no doubt that human error exists even within the church. I think I just touched on that a little bit, but the church is made of sinners, and sadly, um, that means that we will always fail. So it is a sin of scandal when one of the shepherds, for instance, a bishop, a priest, um, who is meant to lead the flock, fails to be faithful to the faith and morals of the church. And so when a priest or bishop is guilty of a serious sin, which we know has happened in church history, we acknowledge the evil, we pray for the conversion of the soul. That is what we as members of the body of Christ have a responsibility to do. And this allows us to understand that it is part of our human nature to experience temptation, accept that no one is perfect If Christ can hang from their cross, hands, feet, side, all pierced, and he forgives his murderers, surely we must be able to forgive our brothers and sisters in Christ, even when they can go astray sometimes. Yet what so often happens is that people doubt the church's authority because they doubt the sinner. They doubt the individual within the church. And this will always be a reality that people will have to learn to work through before they can accept it. So we must trust in the bride that Christ is established because she is our mother, she is our teacher, and I think that it's important to keep in mind that what the church presents, the fullness of her message, is the good news, is the gospel, and she interprets and proclaims the word of God, which are the words given to us by Christ. She has also um, prepared the way for the Lord to be with us in the sacraments, such as Holy Eucharist. Therefore, like, although the sins of the members of the body of Christ are causes for pain and sadness and destruction, they can in no way discredit the eternal word. The church's authority, teaching authority, is um, a derivative from the word magister, which is teacher, and so we have the magisterium, which is the teaching authority of the church, and this is all of her validly ordained bishops who are in communion with the Bishop of Rome, the Holy Father. So their task is to authentically interpret the Word of God, both in Scripture and tradition. And the teaching office is not above uh, the Word of God. Um, Rather, it's more of a servant to the Word of God um, because it teaches on only what has been handed on. So listening to the Word devoutly and guarding it scrupulously and explaining it faithfully in accordance with the Divine Commission and with the help of the Holy Spirit it draws from this particular deposit of faith. Everything which is present for belief has divinely revealed. And I know Dei Verbum touches on that, I believe, in paragraph 10. So if you're interested, you can always reference that a little bit more. So I know this term infallibility, it might be a new one for a lot of um, the listeners here. If you're a Catholic, you probably heard it a bit more than the average person. And so when the the church teaches us about morals and faith. It is so as to instruct us in the way of salvation. And the catechism states that the pastoral duty of the magisterium is aimed at seeing to it that the people of God abides in the truth that liberates. To fulfill this service, Christ endowed the church's shepherds with the charism of infallibility in matters of faith and morals. And that's paragraph 890. So in infallibility is a term describing a gift given by God to his church, where his magisterium when teaching on faith and morals, will not err. Infallibility is guaranteed only in certain instances, um, and those include when the Holy Father proclaims a definitive doctrine pertaining to the faith or to morals, and this is referred to as ex cathedra. So, another entity that would that would be an instance was is when the bishops or body of bishops um, together in communion with the Holy Father exercise their teaching office of the magisterium, most especially um, in an ecumenical council. So when the supreme magisterium essentially exercises her teaching office pertaining to faith and morals, the faithful are then obliged to adhere to her teachings, understanding the character of infallibility on which they present themselves. So I think it's also important to keep in mind that there is also a lower form of magisterial teaching, which is typically referred to as ordinary. In an ordinary exercise of the magisterium, a bishop of really any place, it doesn't have to be Rome, um, will give teaching that assists in clarifying or gives a better understanding of a revelation concerning faith and morals. Um, But this teaching also calls for religious assent, which is distinguished from the obedience of faith, justly applied to um, magisterial teachings, but still recognizes the teaching office proper to the hierarchy of the church. So... I think if we were to take a step back and recall um, just what we know about natural law and divine law and civil law and human law, um, we have to appreciate that we have God's divine law, which is revealed to us to guide us in truth, and we have natural law, which is written upon our hearts, it's inscribed, and it assists us in recognizing true goodness and then also civil and human laws, specifically those that cooperate with or at least do not break God's divine natural law. Um, the church is God's chosen means of guiding his people to better understand and live his divine and natural laws. And when the magisterium presents us to precepts of faith, doctrines which we are to profess, um, these teachings are further elucidating, I would say, what God has already given us with the fullness of revelation in Christ. So the truths proclaimed are not new or... Um, like a, a moment of revelation, rather, So the proclamation is new for the specific culture or generation that one finds himself in. And this brings us to a very large dialogue specifically within the church, um, but I think also in today's society. and that has to do on the teaching of human life. And there are so many areas that we could focus on when it comes to important moral teachings in our times. And only a few have been chosen to respect the amount of time of this episode. Um, So this material or this um, perspective could easily be another podcast platform entirely um, just because of the longevity of this conversation. So your patience and understanding um, is appreciated as we briefly touch on these topics as um, respectfully as we can. So as we all know... Every, every moral or social issue has specific circumstances and ramifications, which can add various consequences to the situation. So we are going to keep things rather simple here, rather straightforward. If you find a particular topic um, that piques your interest uh, beyond or you have questions that stem from this conversation, feel free to reach out to me with your feedback and I will do the best I can to respond to you. So just go ahead and contact me at mothermary15icloud.com. And uh, we can discuss things further than that. Um, so this brings us to the conversation of abortion, and I want to point out that the Catholic Church has stood as a bulwark for the dignity of the human person throughout cultures, throughout generations, throughout the centuries. Historically, the discussion on abortion um, defined as the I want to define that term first, just so we're clear going forward. I'm gonna define abortion proper as the removal of an embryo from the womb of its mother which ends its life um, and that I guess discussion of abortion really has varied in early history it was unclear when a child was actually viable or alive in the womb and at what point removing the child would become murder um, but however through s- the the science was limited then and they didn't have the luxuries of sonograms and so on, the church did condemn murder, and that included killing um, children who were not yet born, and the nuance was determining when that child was a child. However, that's not the case in today's society. By the time we reach modernity and the advent of science that followed us to better understand embryonic development, um, the church continues to repeatedly teach that every human life is valuable from conception, and cannot be killed or destroyed for any reason and human life has the catechism points out must be respected and protected absolutely from the moment of conception from the first moment of his existence a human being must be recognized as having the rights of a person among which is the inevitable right or sorry inviolable inviolable right of every innocent being to life and that is paragraph 2270 so here we see teaching on human's life value in the context of rights um, which is a I would say, overly used term in today's modern culture. But the teaching originates not from a legalistic point of view, but from the admixture of biology and theology. So, biologically speaking, we can understand human development in a way that many could not have imagined years ago. And this brings us to how, um, the, f- I guess, the very first instance of conception, um, which I want to just... Uh, touch on very briefly um in the in the first mo- moments or minutes of when the sperm and egg join a new person is created from that first joining therefore the biological reason against abortion is that the person exists even if that person cannot express himself yet at just about three weeks after conception the human heart is able to beat so considering that most women are not aware of conception until, Um, past this period, which typically occurs about two or three weeks after conception, that means that most women are not considering abortion until after their child is already um, viable with a beating heart. So while the heartbeat is not the only indicator of being alive for many women, um, this is the particular knowledge that helps them to understand the child's status. And so in reality, the cells themselves are alive, and the zygote who begins at cell division replicates and even while it is traveling towards the uterus it's still living and this takes us from the zygote to the two-stage cell and to the four-cell stage to the eight-cell stage uh, to the marilla and then the the blastocyst so we can understand this better when we i think consider the philosophical principle of animation and aristotle's work um upon the soul the anima treats what is to be alive and he determines something for us Um, He establishes that for something to be able to move, whether that's walking, eating, growing, dancing, uh, or for us on a cellular level, dividing or multiplying, there must be a soul of some form. This is because the soul itself is the form of the creature. And if that creature is being that creature, then the form of that creature must be present to allow it to be. So we understand that plants have a vegetative soul where they're capable of photosynthesis, natural growing, production of fruit, and so on. Likewise, we understand that animals um, have sensitive souls, where they are capable of growing, um, raising young, reproducing, and etc. So, we understand human beings have intelligent souls, rational souls, souls with reason and free will, and all of this is to say that a rock does not have a soul. So, we call those things that cannot grow or move in their own accord inanimate and so this is precisely because they do not possess a soul and are not capable of motion okay so a rock can be moved by being pushed or thrown or kicked but it cannot change its shape size color um on its own accord so when we look at the very beginning of human life we see these cells actively at work fusing beginning a rapid process of growth and so with this in mind the church teaches us that in this moment where a new human being is formed biologically we can understand that a soul therefore must be present as the new person is animated moving growing on its own accord so this is why abortion even very early abortions which have been so condemned there is a speculation that might reasonably argue how can we really know when God gives a soul to our body in some respects we do not have that has a direct revelation yet, Yet, this is very important. God has granted us great knowledge and reason based on our understanding of life itself, and this is the most reasonable deduction. One could choose an arbitrary day and say, you know, on day 300, that is when we become a person and are no longer just biological matter. Yet, this is not supported by by biology or, or any reasoning. So, this is why the catechism states in paragraph 2270 that human life must be respected, protected, absolutely from the moment of conception. We've already established that the church protects human life at all stages, including while in utero, for biological and theological reasons. And we've covered the biological aspect well. So, Moving to the theological aspect, I want to point out that it's a twofold um, reasoning. First, a simple command, both the natural and divine law, in the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, that shall not kill. Secondly, our understanding of being created in the image and likeness of God and the good that is proper to our nat- nature and our creation. So, as we've already discussed from the philosophical side, we could under- side we can understand that a soul is present in us at conception. The soul we believe is immortal and will only know its true fulfillment and happiness when united to God in beatific vision. This is not to decredit the body as we are embodied souls and one does not continue to exist upon this earth without the other. The soul needs the body, the body needs the soul. This is also not to discredit life itself. So as God has created us to know, love, and serve him, We have a particular purpose in this life on earth before eternal life. So we are commanded to love and protect every human life at every stage. And human life begins in the womb at conception. This brings us to the matter of embryonic research, specifically stem cells. And I know a lot of you are probably aware of the dialogue going on surrounding the vaccine and the ingredients and the research that was the the research measures that were taken, I guess in formulating a vaccine. Embryonic research is a topic that has definitely declined in popular media, but I think is kind of making a comeback right now with the pandemic. One would wish that the reason for the fading away of the initial embri- embryonic research was due to a lack of actual research occurring, but unfortunately we know this is not the case. Despite an ethical backlash in the early 90s um this research still continues to be funded in various forms and the issue took the limelight a lot in the late 80s and early 90s when this um, research seemed promising Um, specifically embryonic stem cell research um, scientists made a lot of convincing arguments that these stem cells could be the cure for many ailments but without getting too specific um, I just want to point out the stem cells in general are cells with the capacity to differentiate. Embryonic stem cells at the very beginning of life are referred to as totipotent and then pluripotent, so essentially a totality of potencies or, um, ota- or a totality of potencies. So this means that those cells will become any number of things, neurons, blood cells, liver cells, etc., as the person continues to develop non-embryonic stem cells which are typically referred to as adult stem cells or even some cases somatic cells retain some of this capacity we all possess cells that help us heal and regenerate our bodies as we age and in times of illness or injuries adult stem cells are usually multipotent which means they cannot become any cell but they can become a different type of cell an example of this um, would be stem cells from the adult body that are injected into an organ such as the heart that has damaged issues, or tissues. So, um, these cells are able to be reprogrammed so that they can help to reconstruct damaged tissue, essentially some form of like therapeutic regeneration. And adult somatic stem cells have also successfully treated cataracts in numerous patients. So, What is important to note is that successful treatments from stem cells have occurred and from ethical sources, willing adult patients who have made that sacrifice on their own um, will. One reason that scientists, I think, believe these therapeutic treatments have been successful is because in some cases they are taken from the patient's own body, and this means that the doctors can avoid the problem of the body rejecting foreign cells because the cells are not foreign there, thus, the the body, I think, will allow these stem cells to do their job and become the needed cell in the location that is being treated. Hold on one minute. I just got a notification that I wasn't recording. All right, we're good. Um, so, so the body will allow these stem cells to do their job and become the needed cells um, in regards to the place that needs treating treatment. So this has occurred with damaged tissues like I just established in the example above with um, the heart. There have been limited successful treatments with embryonic cells and the idea seems reasonable that because the cells have a greater plasticity uh, they are free essentially to become anything and they should therefore be able to treat more diseases. But the reality is that most often those attempts have ended, ended in failure and obviously even if Embryonic stem cell treatments were effective. We can probably recall that the end does not justify the means. The only way to harvest embryonic stem cells is to remove them from the embryo, which necessarily includes destroying the embryo. In layman's term, this means killing the child. While um, scientists are able to replicate these cells in labs, I know this is probably a question I was going to get, so I'm just going to point this out now. While scientists are able to replicate replicate these cells in labs. Um, so that they can retain many cells from just a few that are taken from an embryo, there must always be the cost of a human life for the end result in this manner. This is why some scientists argue that the cost is worth the potential benefit. They say one or two or even 100 are worth the thousands that might be helped. So in this instance, um, in regards to the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, which have um, embryonic stem cells in them, Uh, Even though there are lives being sacrificed, there are lives being saved. And there's this kind of double standard conversation surrounding everything. So we must keep in mind that these people are, the scientists, are not making a free sacrifice of themselves to save another's life as it is advertised as a noble sacrifice. These are innocent human beings who have no control over what is being done to them. These are precious little babies and they are being reduced to medical material to objects that are merely necessary for an experiment, specifically experiments that require their death. And so this is why the church has strongly condemned this type of research, this type of behavior, and I know there is dialogue about the Pope saying specific things about moral obligations to receive the vaccine or to participate, Um, but unless there is an infallible doctrine coming from the church, I will say this rather boldly, I don't think... Every statement made by every person within the body of Christ needs to be listened to because, as we established earlier, people are not infallible. Um, Christ is infallible, so we must listen to his voice and what he's already said. And we know for for from Scripture alone, the amount of lives that he saves and the amount of lives he brings back to life and the amount of souls that he saves from eternal death, he values life very, very much. If you'd like to, I guess, delve a little bit more into stem cells, there is a stem cell research facts, which I'll um, I'll leave a link to in the episode. The reality is that if you were to just search on Google, you will find some very differing results. And certain think tanks, invested companies that will claim all forms of research are harmless, worthwhile, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Others will state that stem cells um, research is is dangerous. So it's important to be I just aware of the principles of the church when dealing with ethical ch- topics. Um, if you apply basic moral principles to this discussion, it's pretty easy to discern if there is a just action or not. So, um, I guess moving from this particular aspect of stem cells, I want to talk about in vitro fertilization. Now, if you are, if you are not a Catholic, and I just want to be very um, tender going into this specific dialogue because I know there is a lot of um, pain and loss surrounding this conversation. I know in vitro fertilization, there's a lot of couples out there who would do anything to have a child and this is a form of helping them do that. Unfortunately, it's not ethical um, in regards to the sacredness of marriage and the conjugal act. So I just want to... Establish that I speak about this particular topic very tenderly, very lovingly, um, but also as a daughter of God who has a responsibility to, to proclaim the truth surrounding this conversation. So, um, if you're not Catholic and maybe you were thinking about it in vitro fertilization or maybe you have participated in vitro fertilization, um, I just want you to know that you are, um, you are seen and you are recognized and, I pray that you are able to accept this um, with the love that I'm saying this. So in vitro fertilization um, literally means in glass. That's what in vitro means. So in vitro fertilization is the fusing of an egg and a sperm cell. Um, that's the basic biology of it. So from there you were able to create new human life in a petri dish. Um, I think we need to address first the overall method of conception. The two ends of marriage are the union of the spouses and procreation. This is the reason why the church is taught against contraception, because the various methods that that are used create a barrier to the union of the spouses so that they are not totally giving of themselves in the union, and they inhibit procreation, which is the other end of marriage. And as we know, when a man and a woman are married, they are to become one flesh. And so with in vitro methods, the spouses are not sharing in that union of one flesh, and that removes the unitive end. Thus, the, in the I guess in the most basic sense, this form of conception, and I, I say this very lovingly again, um, this form of conception is against natural law. The means of attaining obtaining the sperm cells is typically more illicit. Um, and then this, once again, is not the unitive for the couple and is an abuse of sexual faculties. And so to be clear, the church teaching is that the use of um, sexual faculty for men and women outside of a gift of self to the spouse is sinful. So the embryo deserves to be conceived in a natural habitat of course if a child is conceived via ivf he or she is still a person created by god because those egg and that sperm and that zygote that all came from god so it's not to say that if you were conceived through in vitro fertilization or if you conceived a child through vitro fertilization that that child is not a person of god or or something of that nature that's that's not accurate at all that that child is still um person created by god although it is not the natural way of things. But that does not diminish that every spiritual soul is created intimately by God and is not produced by the parents. And so once a new life is created, it is a human person in his or her body, soul unity. This means that each egg that is fertilized is a new person. And when we see, um, I guess, and and then from here we can see the tragic consequences of the process of IVF for those those little tiny babies, embryos, who are not implanted, um, usually more eggs are fertilized than are implanted in a given round of IVF. Um, those embryos may be discarded um, later or kept frozen for an indefinite amount of time. And eventually, I, as I if, if I understand correctly, they can, I guess, go bad or die or, um, I guess, just, just being um, discarded and we forget that that embryo is a human (laughs) so this is a topic that has a lot of gravity to it that we need to address and so like i said i have a responsibility as a daughter of god to touch on this um, pertinent moral issue Um, i just also want to point out that there are cases where multiple embryos have been transferred to the mother in the process um, the implantation into the womb um, the child begins to grow And this can also result in a mother desiring fewer babies at one time. And so the doctor can then offer selective reduction. And so the doctor can remove some of the multiples so that the parents don't have three, four, five babies at once. And this is essentially selective abortion. So while it is true that multiple children in the womb are typically born premature and may thus have a harder time of growing to term, There was that was a risk incurred by this process, but it does not merit the direct killing of the child. There are other issues as well, but this covers the main topic in regards to in vitro fertilization, and it's clear that while the desire for children is in itself a very good thing, the situation of infertility is a very hard cross to bear, and in vitro fertilization is not the way to treat the problem. And so... I think just a closing remark that I would like to leave on this particular dialogue about in vitro fertilization is that if you are having trouble conceiving in your marriage, if you do desire children um, but you are having infertility struggles and um, you want to conceive but you don't want to participate in the moral evil of in vitro fertilization, um, there are programs out there, um, natural family planning, um, that work around helping you um, become as fertile as possible and just tracking things and, and, and doing things from a very natural perspective, point of view. Um, uh, being more aware about your health and um, just your overall health and, and everything that people can do programs such as Natural Family Planning. Um, they can help you, I guess... Do things from a natural route, um, and, and that'll help you increase your chances of conceiving. Um, another moral issue I want to talk about is euthanasia. It is on the other side of the spectrum of disregard for life. So we can define it as an action or a mission that intentionally causes death in order to eliminate suffering. Um, the catechism here explains that Direct euthanasia consists in putting an end to the lives of the handicapped, sick, or dying person. And that's in paragraph 2277. This has also been referred to as mercy killing, which is somewhat ironic, as it acknowledges that the person is being intentionally killed. So euthanasia is different from physician-assisted suicide because of the involvement of the patient. In the case of euthanasia, the patient does not get to choose to die, but is essentially being put out of his misery, similar to the language we use um, surrounding animals when you choose to put a pet down when they are sick or dying. So in the situation of physician-assisted suicide, the patient is asked for assistance in ending his life. And frequently that patient has become wearied by pains, of illness, or even the drugs from illness. And so in many cases, they are depressed. They're not in a a stable um, mental state. So their lack of mental health also makes this an issue for doctors who might be taking advantage of the patient rather than seeking actual healing for the person. So, the church teaches that natural death is the proper and only good choice. This does not mean that death without medicine or death without medical aid and attention. um, That means that a death that is not directly caused, be it by a physician or oneself. So, therefore, like, the cancer patient in hospice who is being given a steady dose of morphine to ease the pain and discomfort, the requirements are that this patient not be given some injection or or pill of of some nature that would cause their death. Um, the, the church also teaches us that the end of life, there is what is termed ordinary or proportionate care and also extraordinary or disproportionate care. So the ethical and religious directives. Um, have stated the following. So, a person has a moral obligation to use ordinary or proportionate means of preserving his or her own life. Proportionate means are those that, in the judgment of the patient, offer a reasonable hope of benefit and do not entail an excessive burden or impose excessive expense on the family or community. A person may forego extraordinary or disproportionate means of preserving life. Disproportionate means are those that in the patient's judgment do not offer a reasonable hope of benefit or entail an excessive burden or impose excessive expense on the family or the community, end quote. So, to be clear here, <coughs> when one is in the state where it can be judged disproportionate means, such as terminal cancer, where the doctors have said that the patient has days or weeks to live, <coughs> the patient and his family may come to the decision to forego any further treatment. This alleviates some of the financial burden as well as potentially the suffering um, as, you know, cancer treatment is typically very aggressive to the body. Um, However, the patient should still be receiving care to keep him comfortable and help him approach death with minimal suffering. So providing the patient with food and water is always considered ordinary proportionate, um, is, is being afforded ordinary proportionate care. A patient may die of natural means in accord with human dignity, but may never be, starved or dehydrated to the point of death so while it is understandable that some feel that the church's stance on this li- issue lacks in compassion the truth is that compassion itself means to suffer with the latin stem comes from "cum," come, meaning with or "cum," and so and then p-a-t-i p-t means to suffer so therefore compassion is not to end suffering but to suffer with or to help the person um, bear the suffering. Christianity, I think, sees suffering in a very unique way um, in our contemporary society. We understand redeeming qualities and ability to draw close to Christ, who's suffering one salvation for all of us. So, this can be hard for a non Christian to understand. You don't have to be Catholic for this to be difficult for you. <laughs> if you're not even Christian, um, uh, this can definitely be something hard to grasp. But this is where we as Christians have a responsibility to help others understand. Um, this also stems from our own understanding that life in and of itself is good um, god said that it is very good so for the many who are bearing pain and sickness that fact can be questioned or doubted this is another instance where the christian can bring some good news from evangelium gospel as the value of being alive is tied to the value of having an immortal soul and existence proper as we've already discussed if you are dying of cancer that's not the end. That's not your story. Your story is your walk with Christ. It's what you choose in the spiritual realm. That's what defines your life story. Um, another really pertinent, <clears throat> excuse me, another very pertinent um, moral problem dilemma in today's society is the matter of same-sex marriage, which is also referred to as homosexual marriage. It is a very strongly relevant topic, especially due to the reality that many of us work with um, people or family members or friends of family members who are in a same-sex relationship or same-sex marriage. There are some nuances to the discussion, even from the perspective of the church's teaching. The first is that the objective-grade nature of homosexual relationships Um, this is distinct from the issue of marriage. Here we are addressing the act that is proper to two people who are married. Keep in mind the fornication being heterosexual relationships out of marriage also constitute a mortal sin. So recall that when we use the term mortal sin here, we mean that the nature of the act is of grave matter. We are not saying that all people who have ever participated in fornication or homosexual relationships have sinned mortally. We remember that the three elements to determining if someone is culpable of a mortal sin is that the more the matter is grave, in this case it is, that the person is aware of the matter as being grave, and that the person freely chooses to do the act even with that knowledge. So we understand that the act of union between pe- two people who are of the same gender is a sin and a grave matter. Um, why does the church teach us that this is sinful? Let's first look at why. Heterosexual union is understood as rightly or rightly ordered, and why homosexual union is considered disordered. There is an obvious biblical foundation, and keep in mind we're talking about divine law in regards to biblical foundations. So there's an obvious biblical foundation for heterosexual union. God gave Adam and Eve to one another, and then gave them the command to multiply and established. The human form of procreation as a union of <clears throat> male and female. Falling upon this truth in Revelation, there is also the biological foundation for heterosexual union, which is that the only union of male and female can procreate. For our species, the propagation of a race is in the male-female union. So the proper ordering of sexual union is between a man and a woman, both because God has given that exact instruction, He's written it to us in the very nature of our beings. It is divine and natural law. What then do we say of those who are attracted to the same sex? Certainly they are not evil, nor are they sinning by such attractions. Whether this attraction is determined, determined um, environmentally or biologically, Christians who carry the specific cross are invited to share in the cross of Christ by accepting a celibate life. This is an honorable Christian lifestyle to remain chaste regardless of the temptations you have. They should be surrounded, they, I don't know if I want to say they, um, people who struggle with this cross, with this sin, should surround themselves with family and friends who love them and support them, um, but not in their sin, not supporting their sin, but rather supporting their walk with Christ. Um, I also would encourage a life guided by prayer. The Sacraments will be the one that brings joy and peace to the soul um, and to the one who seeks to follow the Lord unreservedly. Um, also, I just want to point out that living such a chaste lifestyle with particular temptations and sinful urgings, um, it can be different or difficult. And so we can recall that all of the faithful in any state of life are called to be chaste, practice abstinence at various times. And so depending on the state of life that manifests itself in different forms. So For the celibate, chastity means that the sexual faculty is given over to Christ and the church has virginity for the sake of the kingdom. Um, Priests and religious experience a kind of spiritual motherhood or fatherhood versus a biological one um, through their ministry and prayer. For the married couple, that means fidelity to marriage in appropriate times of abstinence um, as is needed for the couple. For those who have not determined a lifelong vocation, this means abstinence until marriage or perpetual abstinence has a priest or religious. So... This helps us to see that all Christians walk on the path of chastity and are called to the path of chastity, and it should help us to be more compassionate to our brothers and sisters who may find this aspect of the Christian life particularly challenged. Um, let's look at an example, um, specifically at, at a marriage of two people of the same sex rather than only the union itself. Marriage has been present in human history from the beginning, as Christ himself made very clear. Some I just relay to you the um, instance from Matthew chapter 19. Some Pharisees approached him and said to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause whatsoever? He said, Have you not read that from the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and a mother and be joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh? They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, God is joined together. What God has joined together, no man shall separate. They said to him, Then why did Moses command that the man give the woman a bill of divorce and dismiss her? He said to them, Because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives from the beginning. It was not so. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, unless the marriage is unlawful and marries another, commits adultery. And that is Matthew chapter 19, um, verse 3 through 9. So, um, I guess... I'll share another instance that I I could think of off the top of my head from Ephesians chapter chapter 5, verse 31, um, where it's established that, um, and I quote, This natural marriage has been present throughout history. Christ raises it to the level of a sacrament, um, and St. Paul teaches us in his letter to the Ephesians. So, um, I just wanted to quote him real fast, and so, he says that for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak in reference to Christ and the church. So this emphasis of the analogy of the spouses to Christ as the bridegroom and the church has his bride helps us to understand marriage according to God's plan. Christ's relationship with the church is permanent. It is faithful unto the end. It is fruitful, brings eternal life by the sacraments to church's members. It is a free gift that he made of himself, an example to us of what a union is meant to be. Free, faithful, total, complete gift of self, fruitful. And so even when a same-gender couple can accomplish some or even most of these, it can never naturally accomplish all of these good things. It is a challenging discussion of society for sure, um, but I just wanted to emphasize that the church is clear that the union of two people and of the same gender is not marriage. While the civil law may recognize that union with that term, the natural and divine law do not agree. Um, So if you recall, the civil law does not hold authority because it can at times transgress God's law. Marriage in and of itself will always be the lifelong union of man and woman who freely choose to commit to one another, total self-gift. And producing fruit, offspring, multiplying. All right. I think that topic of same-sex marriage brings us to another prevalent topic in today's society, which is gender confusion. And this topic continues to draw attention and is the subject of numerous reflections from specialists in many fields, which include, you know, philosophy, psychology, theology. And I'm not trained in any of these fields, Um, I am in theology and and partially in philosophy, but I'm not trained in all of these fields, specifically psychology. So I will give you some basic parameters on the topic that we established. So first, we know from both natural law and from the laws of nature, biology, that there are two sexes in our species, species, which is male and female. Secondly, God has given us our bodies and we are called to accept them, love them, care for them, even with the varying challenges, struggles, sufferings and flaws. Thirdly, there are people who are born intersex with ambiguous genitalia, so where their external biological features do not match their internal reproductive organs or even perhaps have ambiguous reproductive organs. So this can be caused by chromosome chromosomal and anomalies, such as an extra X chromosome, or by a hormone exposure in utero, among other things. So, these people deserve compassion, assistance, just as anyone who suffers from um, genetic anomalies of any sort, such as being born without um, vas deferens, so, so, uh, or being born with the, the digits on your hands or feet differently. Like, we should be clear that gender takes up more than just the physical matter and includes the effects um, and affects our hormones and therefore has substantial interplay with psychological, emotional, spiritual aspects. Thus, these people will need more assistance in life to handle such a situation beyond basic surgery. However, we do not define the majority by a minority. And in biology especially, there are always going to be exceptions or mutations that create new or challenging situations. We have to be on guard. We have to be aware. We must continue to grow and adapt in these circumstances. And help people do them we do not determine that our species is no longer only male and female because there is a very 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 small number of people who are born in different situations and this has been a recent argument to support the multitudes of variants in gender according to my modern ideology fourth i just want to establish that being male and female is vastly important to how we relate to one another the sexual difference is again more than the biological aspect those who need empirical data will be able to find ample studies that document the differences in the sexes that do not have to do with the physiological and emotional aspects of the person. Um, much of the modern argument or fluidity in gender claims that this all comes down to feelings and personal preference, which certainly takes up the psychological and emotional. So, interestingly, those who transition require hormone therapy or some form to make physical changes, such as testosterone or... Um, testosterone, sorry, or to um, build more of a male physique or a higher estrogen for the female physique. But these also affect the person psychologically and emotionally, and it's not possible to actually remove the sexual dysmorphism of our species, regardless of the person's desire or preference. So I'm going to limit my comments about this topic. If you would like to do further reading, um, the Vatican's Congregation for Catholic Education once published a document titled Male and Female, he created them towards a path of dialogue on the question of gender, theory, and education. And so this document, I just want to i uh, point out that it doesn't cover every aspect. It is a good place to begin, though. So if you're interested, I will have that PDF in the show notes. Um, yes, I, I, I'll i put that in the show notes. Um, and I'm trying to think if I can do that. Um Yeah. Okay. So I'll, I'll leave a link to this and then you can access the PDF through the show notes. i just got to write a little reminder. So I remember, um, this, I have a a few more topics I wanted to talk about, but I think I'm going to skip over two of them for now, just because we're getting a little long here. Um, I want to talk about the surrogate parent And I want to begin with an excerpt from Donum Vitae responding to the question of whether surrogacy is morally illicit, or sorry, morally illicit. Um, So uh, the short answer is no, for the same reasons which lead one to reject heterologous, heterologous, I can never say that word, goodness, artificial fertilization, Um, for it is contrary to the unity of marriage and to the dignity of the procreation of the human person. Um, surrogate motherhood represents an objective failure to meet the obligations of maternal love, conjugal fidelity, and the responsible motherhood. It offends the dignity and the right of the child to be conceived and carried in the womb of his mother. It sets up to the detriment of families, division, physical, uh, psychological, moral elements which constitute those families. So, surrogacy has gained a lot of popularity in our our society, especially because women um, see it as a way to earn money in many cases. And so this has become a particular problem for women in a second and third world countries where women are essentially selling their uterus for a lesser sum than what would be paid in a first world country. Dona divine surrogacy, has the woman who carries... In pregnancy, an embryo implanted in our uterus who is genetically a stranger to the embryo because it has been obtained through the union of the gametes of the donors, she carries the pregnancy with a pledge to surrender the baby once it is born to the party who commissioned or made the agreement for the pregnancy. woman who carries in pregnancy an embryo to whose procreation she has contributed to the donation of her own ovum, fertilized through insemination with the sperm of a man other than her husband, she carries that pregnancy with a pledge of surrender the child once it is born to the party who commissioned or made the agreement for pregnancy. Quote. So we can understand some consequences from such an arrangement and the seriousness that these consequences can have. One occurrence is that the contracting party decides that the child is no longer wanted. This does in fact happen and in this case if the child is early enough along the contracted party will most likely abort the child. If the child is past the legal point for abortion in some states um, the contracted party faces the challenge of bringing the child to term and either raising it or placing it in adoption care. That's a lot of consequences. That's a lot of problems. That's, it's just amazing to me that this is even a thing that people choose to do. Um, another consequence is in the case of the second um, paragraph that I read moments ago. Um, where women whose child is growing has been contracted by another party. But whose child is half of her own biological material. Surrounding the baby can be much more difficult than the mother intends, and frequently this causes issues. Some wider consequences include, um, like the donation of eggs and sperm, which is sometimes done anonymously, and this can be a problem when people do not know what kind of genetic material they are working with. Essentially, it is possible for someone to conceive a child with DNA of a cousin or a distant relative, and while this seems unlikely, this would be a common occurrence. Over time, it can create issues with the gene pool. So, even more bizarre would be the scenario where a younger person, let's say, like, let's say a younger female marries an older person, um, and in reality, say the older person's like 20 years older than her, in reality that, that, um, person, that male is, is, is her father by generation, like having donated his sperm when he was young in need of money trying to get into law school. They might never know the true nature of their relationship, but their children could suffer repercussions of what is essentially, and forgive me for using this harsh term, but i believe it to be true. This is essentially um, incest. So therefore the church condemns the practice of surrogacy because of the insult to marriage and natural generation, but also for the well-being of the children who are born from such situations and the women who would be exploited in these circumstances. So I guess in conclusion, um, we've covered quite a few topics here. There was a lot of information in a very short time. But hopefully this will give you a good starting point for your own research and discussion. Many of these topics have good top, good like good research um, uh, done upon them with numerous books, encyclicals, articles, etc. Um, and if you're encouraged to continue studying them, I urge you to do so. Um, if you are interested or curious or maybe some things that make sense to you, reach out to me. I will give you some resources um, that I use and that I found helpful, and I can answer any questions that you may have. Um, And if you guys want me to do a follow-up episode on some of these moral issues, um, I would be happy to do so. It is important that we have a good basis for helping others to understand church teaching and why the church instructs us in these moral issues that greatly impact human life. Um, Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining me. I know today was a bit of a lengthier episode, but these are really important discussions that we need to have. So I'm grateful for your time. I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for your walk with Christ. And until next week and until next time, I will be praying for you. And um enjoy this Easter season, guys. He has risen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I am so, so pumped about that. It's such a such a cool thing, guys. So I'll be praying for you. I hope that um, God continues to bless you abundantly. And until next time, God bless. Bye-bye.